I'm Prithvi Vatharajan, and thanks for joining me for this program of poetry exploring the loss of animal species. Red Room Poetry, in collaboration with Durham University Research Fellow Dr. Thomas Bristow, developed a series of poetic commissions called Extinction Elegies. Six eminent Australian poets were invited to write new poems responding to the extinction or endangerment of many spectacular local species, which are disappearing or have disappeared due to human activity in the Anthropocene. Through elegy, a poetic form typically used to lament human loss, the poets explore our emotions and empathy for losses in the non-human realm. In this episode called Island Ecologies, we'll hear from the poets Michelle Carl and John Kinsella, who've written poems about the King Island Emu and the Christmas Island Pipistrelle, as well as from the animal conservation scientist, Professor John Wanarski, who tells us about these species and their island homes. So I'm John Wanarski and I come from the Charles Darwin University and the Threatened Species Recovery Hub of the National Environmental Science Program. And I've worked in ecology and conservation for 40 odd years in Australia. I lived in the bush as a boy, always in the bush, always most comfortable in the bush, always interested in animals. Um, and I spent all my life researching them, trying to understand how they live and work, how the environment interacts with them and then with the environment. And particularly, um, and increasingly so, um, how to look after them, what's causing declines, and what we can do about declines of Australian biota. Could you tell me about the habits and behaviour of the King Island emu? It went extinct sometime between 1805 and 1838, possibly through the activity of sealers on King Island. So perhaps you have some knowledge about this particular species that you can share? Yeah, there are a couple of uh, bird species in Australia that um, became extinct really soon after European settlement. So there was the Kangaroo Island emu, the King Island emu, and the White Gallinule on uh, Norfolk Island. Um, and all three became extinct almost certainly because of uh, human hunting. King Island was settled by sealers early on in the European settlement of Australia, and they were fairly uh, not great environmentalists. The King Island emu was very easy to see as a hunting alternative food source to um, seals and the like. So the settlers um, were dependent upon it to a degree. They also um, burnt much of the forest, the extensive forests that formerly clothed King Island, and turned it into a very different environment to which the King Island emu was probably not very well adapted. And it was a species that seemed to be um, fairly naive to humans. Like the mowers in New Zealand, um, the King Island emu was declined very rapidly and became extinct, mm. sadly. And let's talk numbers. So um, how many Australian species have become extinct in modern times since Australia was colonised and how does that compare to global extinctions in that time um, and extinctions more historically? We know that we've lost 34 endemic mammal species in Australia since 1788. Um, that's mammal species that occurred nowhere else in the world other than Australia. Um, in contrast, continental North America has lost two mammal species over that period. And the next worst country beyond Australia is Haiti and Dominican Republic, which have each lost eight or nine species. So we're heads and shoulders above any other country in terms of our extinction of mammals in modern times. Um, 
We've done the sums recently about the number of species formerly listed as extinct in Australia across all taxonomic groups, and that tallies to about 99 species since 1788, which is a rate of about four extinctions per decade continuously over that time. And the rate of extinctions of that number has not changed hardly at all since 1788. So we're losing as many species over the last two decades, for example, as we have in earlier decades. It's not simply a problem, a shock of the new sort of situation where the early European settlers in Australia sort of wiped out everything. The wiping out's been continued. The issue is there, though, that that's a vast underestimate. The 99 is simply those formerly listed extinctions. We think the real number is probably closer to a thousand, at least, if not more. Um, and probably we're losing one to ten species per year, I think, since European settlement in Australia. One of the issues is that the world's full of extinctions, unhappily, and the rate is becoming higher. The rate of loss is increasing as human populations and their use of the environment increase. Uh, typically, globally, species are driven to extinction by hunting or by clearance of habitat. In Australia, the situation's substantially different that most Australian extinctions are due to introduced species, particularly in Australian context, cats and foxes. So what's happening in Australia is very different to all other continents in the world in terms of its biodiversity or the causes of its biodiversity loss. Michelle Carl reading excerpts from her poem about the King Island Emu. Mal de la Mer, or I walked the island searching for you. The more we know, the further we are away from them. John Berger. One. Alil, where sealers, marauders, naturalists came the amphibology of strangers not estranged. Trying to elegize, outlining from ornithology to anthology, this almost preservation. My first words are amatry, armory, amuria. To have and to hoard, a damaged bone, the tarso metatarsus, a prized feather. Don't think it hasn't hurt me. Two, driving to the lighthouse where your bones lie buried under grass, all the grave sites dug up, developed by a Vietnamese investor. Below the golf course, code en ligne, a photograph credit reads, Juvenile and adult femurs above of dwarf emu supplied Natural Museum of History. Or the rank kelp at Surprise Bay, knuckled, wind-racked, its volley gunshots, the sand-logged ship's compass and snuff-box. Recycled parts of you, plume, fable, subject, object, third specimen hitherto unaccounted for. Steam rising from the road, driving past a recent portfolio, Lawson's blood Angus cows plus progeny and bulls. Listening to Amy Shark's adore, Sarah hosting Triple J's live at the wireless. Polished grass, the sun fretting. Guinea fowl scamper off the tarmac. A smashed head near egg colony, her twisted neck, feathers waxing the road. Who is not yours to recollect? White rivulets, 
yet threading and threading through storm clouds, you and your radio silence. There's death everywhere, out on the scarp at Quarantine Bay, masquerading a dead wallaby, sick, beaded with flies, the cable of her tail, translucent periosteum, garnet tibia, hauled off the road, possible? half-buried, dun-coloured as these dunes that have risen from a screaming sea where the relics of animals, boatmen, steerage, ship's captain and first-class passengers have lain, namesakes unmarked. Stubborn optimists, how we hope for the dryness of death. All I see is glistening, clouds pregnant with rain, their shadows drifting in subordinate skies, sleet hissing, Spare white stones that are become, becoming. The lighthouse gravelled, sentinel ruse dying out there in the cold, in squalls, racing me along the road. Our delirious crossings, subtle dislocations, working through grasses whipped into metronomes, violent composites. Three. A hen runs ahead in the swamp hollows, flightless. Le plumage sujet à la mieux. Wind ploughing the Latinate silences. Note, there has been nomenclatural slate of hand over the emus and their technical names have been changed for reasons that may not be entirely proper. Two lesser extinct Casoario Nero Ata Dromarius Minor. Two live birds were taken aboard Nicholas Bourdain's ship. Height, four and a half feet. Weight, 50 or 60 pounds. Four. From the cliff, the island's grid of road posts, power lines, fencing, mesh, are divisions, the marks of men, artefacts, Lucier's disproportionate fantasies, partisan spills in Parliament, dead knobs, rumps, the road signature, Seals hemorrhaging, shedding tears, wind the colour of grief, made of the earth, mouthful by mouthful, wings that cannot lift, black glistening feathers on our faces, the nail tearing our lips, the feet scratching us, knocked free of each other by a beak, torn apart from the broken springs of knowledge, our eyes open, glassy, what we swallowed vanishing, too dead for the public gaze, the smell of pesticides, formaldehyde, fossa for ramen organ, a grammar blended with the pleasant smell of food in their bellies, full of gravel, berries, seaweed. It was really interesting the way that this bird was a diminutive kind of emu um, like the bird on Kangaroo Island was also smaller than the mainland emu and it was interesting to read and learn about the way that the classifications were quite haphazard, the notations that went with the birds and the way that in the end the bird became subject to you know the nomenclature, the categorization um, and parts of it were moved around museums in Europe and that was in the last of the two birds which went back to France on Baudin's exploration on his ship 
Those two birds died in um, apparently in 1822 and they were the last two birds of the species that had lived. So I found that so poignant. You know, the, this story of Europeans arriving, there's so many shipwrecks around the island because of the swells and the currents and so forth. It's an awful story when you think about it, the way that they had exploited um, Aboriginal people, their relationship with the sealers, um, you know, the taking of animals and the curation, the curation of these animals, really, and the taking away of supposedly knowledge, you know, to European museums and the devastation afterwards, like it wasn't long after the invasion or the arrival of the Europeans in this kind of expedition that um, the wild animal, you know, demised. What was the purpose of their exploration? If it was a naturalist expedition, what did they achieve? And it makes me wonder about the kinds of things we're doing in our contemporary world as well. You know, in the name of science, knowledge and... Um, Western exploration. Professor John Wanarski. These things will always be passive if we don't know the species. If I have no connection with them, if I've never seen them, um, then I will care far less about them. So it's a matter of as many in our society as possible getting to know the nature that surrounds them and getting to care about them. Um, and if we care about those things, um, if we value them, then so too will the politicians. At the moment, um, many of the species in Australia are abstractions and names and without any sort of uh, meaning to many species. Um, if I can give you an illustration of the depth of feeling that is possible about our wildlife. We were doing a project in Northern Australia which involved going to lots and lots of small Aboriginal communities and trying to talk with those people about what they perceived as loss of wildlife in their country, whether some of these species still occurred in their land, um, if they didn't, when they disappeared, and to provide and to try to get some information about what the Aboriginal people, landholders, thought the causes of the loss of those species. So we had all these stuffed mammals that... Um, used to occur in all these communities and no longer occurred in many cases. And we had this one really moth-eaten northern quoll specimen. Um, it was a pretty crappy piece of work, um, but it was the only one we could find at the time. And we took this to a community at Bullman, near Catherine, and we showed this old lady this quoll, which was formerly on her land, but which she hadn't seen for 30 years or more. And she just took that animal from us and put it in her lap and just stroked it for about 30 minutes and sang its song and cried. You know, it's just such a, um, a depth of feeling, a depth of emotion about what the loss of that species meant to her, um, how important it was to her perspective on life, her responsibility for keeping land and country in good health. She sort of had thought that she'd failed. It was also really important that she sung the song, that she continued that cultural continuity um, that the loss of that animal had interrupted. Um, and Aboriginal people's respect for country and the animals that live in them, it's something we all should learn from um, because we won't live well in this country unless we have a much better connection with nature 
and value it much more and actually grieve for it if it diminishes. Mm. It's ultimately, it's part of the beauty of life um, and the worthwhileness of us being on earth. Uh, we do have to recognise we're remarkably privileged um, to be living on earth and to be living in a land which has such natural beauty and wonder as Australia. Um, so we should feel privileged in living here and part of what goes with that privilege is some responsibility for caring about it um, and for doing something about it and for not simply taking it for granted and assuming that it will continue. So, John, the Christmas Island Pipistrelle was classified extinct in August 2009. Um, describe for us what kind of mammal it was, its behaviour, habitat and geographical distribution. Yeah, it became extinct on 26th of August 2009. It was the only small bat on Christmas Island. It was remarkable not so much for its singularity, but more for its extinction. It was a very typical small bat, and many people sort of... Um, view them as inconspicuous, uncharismatic, uh, of low value. And the Christmas Island was sort of just one of that many hundreds of small bats in the world. But it was unique. It was the only small bat on Christmas Island and it served a useful function, sort of insectivorous. Um, had lived probably on the island for hundreds of thousands of years, so it's very much its island home. The island was um, colonised in the 1890s by Europeans. It was uninhabited prior to that time. And it um, survived happily for about 100 years of that human settlement and then very rapidly became rarer and rarer and rarer over a period of one to two decades and then it disappeared mm. and there were no more. So it's fascinating, um, not so much as a species of itself, but for the symbolism of uh, loss, I think. The island's relatively homogenous, beautiful rainforest, really tall trees, um, really green, striking place. Magnificent scenery, um, beautiful ocean all around it. And the Christmas Island pipistrelle occurred all throughout and was common. Um, there's sort of many early records reporting it being common, being hit by the um, ceiling fans as it sort of foraged inside houses. There's one record of um, this very proper lady who f suddenly found a, um, a Christmas Island pipistrelle in her soup as she was eating it because it hit the ceiling fan above her and it fell in the soup. I think that was an uncommon cause of mortality for Christmas Island pipistrelles though. Um, and the Christmas Island Pipistrelle and the King Island Emu both went extinct on small islands. Perhaps you could speak about the significance of the small island context. Yeah, look, islands are the most wonderful of all sort of places on the world. Um, they're really diverse, really beautiful, really different. Each one is a different constellation of species that have arisen through the happenstance of their colonisation um, by different groups of animals and plants. Um, but islands are small um, so the populations of species that live on them tend to be low as well, very small populations. Um, they have limited genetic diversity. Many of them, the species that occur on islands, are relatively defenceless because they haven't needed to evolve defence mechanisms. So it's a characteristic across island plants, for example, that they've lost all their thorns, um, whereas their closest relatives on mainland areas are prickly. Um, there's a characteristic of many island birds that they've become flightless, um, whereas their closest relatives on mainland areas still have working wings. Um, and that's partly because they've got very little area to move around in, so they don't really need to do anything, and they don't really have other species that co-occur with them that eat them. Um, so they become docile and really trusting and really naive. 
which is one of the great beauties of going to really remote islands where there's not much human visitation. You know, the animals come right up to you and and share their souls with you. It's remarkable. Um, but it's a really bad adaptation to when these islands are colonised by humans um, or the pests that humans bring either deliberately or inadvertently to those islands. So islands smaller than Tasmania comprise less than 0.5% of the total Australian landmass. Uh, but our review of extinctions found that 21 of the 99 extinctions in Australia occurred on those islands. So, you know, more than 20% of extinctions are on less than 0.5% of the land area. It's really disproportionate. So islands are the crucible, I guess, of extinctions in Australia. So if we are to reduce the rate of extinctions in Australia, we should take note of that fact and make sure that biosecurity mechanisms on islands are as good as they can possibly be because that's the most effective step that can be taken to reduce the rate of extinctions. Hi, I'm John Kinsella, and this is my poem, Not the Postage Stamp of the Christmas Island Pipistrelle. Drag you back into viability, mainland sciences descended to haul you into a breeding colony. But vanishing was fast, and the last of your brethren we heard echolocating in August 2009. What on earth led to your demise, so many asked now, weltering through herbicides and pesticides, closing their eyes as they drive past pockets of vegetation being emptied out, mined, harvested. World is your island. World is a roost under dried fronds of oranga palms with your few grand body, the soft spot of reminisce and distress. What is vanity in bringing oneself into the blank mirror of cliches? Extinction shows nothing back, nothing we can learn from, nothing we can focus on, make up, repair. This picture in which you're edited out? Who found you roosting in that hollow of a Sigeum nervosum? Why should they know about the size of your testes, your veracity? Night sleep, day forage, in and out of primary forest. So familiar and yet the details, the reports, they're nothing. And add in the personal column of, to you in your space, and to those people who lived in and around you, just passing through from Cocos Keeling to the mainland, but taken into custody by the feds at Christmas Island Airport, because of a failure to cross back and forth between material and spirit worlds. No cultural lift, just loss of connect on both planes. And yet, as your echolocation reached across the twilight before twilight arrived, a waking sleep, moths testing the walls of constraint, I tuned in. Haunting premonition of loss, forage zone of the spiritually lost, the vulnerable, the lonely. What family will post your obituary, trapped in descriptors and comparatives, analogies and desperate metaphors? Your thin membraned wing, your other material's nose, your veined ears, your fur, all brushed me under interrogation as you pieced a life together in your splendid isolation, a nation's flexing of manifest destiny, human refugees floundering, lost in surrounding seas.
So this poem refers to um, obviously the extinction event regarding the uh, Christmas Island Pipistrol and also on the personal level, um, a flight I took back from um, the Cocos Keeling Atoll via Christmas Island in early 1995 after I'd been there for a long stay. I'd been living there and uh, I'd been trying to get over alcohol and other addictions and um, I was in delirium tremens. I'd been in the hospital and on the plane I became quite vocal and vociferous about many political issues as I'm known to do. Of course when you mix the problem I had with that and uh, drinking and so on it um, doesn't come across particularly well and I was uh, arrested at Christmas Island Airport and put into the lockup there and interrogated for some time. I believe that uh, in some ways I connected through the experience of the echolocation or otherwise with the Christmas Island Pipistrol on that occasion. Now whether that's retrospective wish fulfillment or actually happened is neither here nor there in terms of the poem because what the poem is doing is aligning personal experience, culpability and presence with larger events that are taking place because of Anthropocene um, pressures. So this is a poem in which we look at species as being part of an extinction event in terms of all living things. The identifying of a species is in some ways a fetishization of the death process of the Thanatos, and I'm trying to challenge that. And as a animal rights activist and as a habitat activist talk about the inclusiveness of culpability and um, all the poisonings and the destructions we do are part of the overall large extinction event the drive towards an end we don't need to have we can turn it around so this is a poem about loss and also a poem about prevention it's a poem about devastation also a poem about hope it merges the personal because we are culpable and as error strewn as I am, and certainly was, um, that doesn't mean there wasn't a receptivity and a desire to cross from the material to the spiritual, quote unquote. And I look at that in a dialectic sense, not necessarily in a religious sense. I look at it in a philosophical and ethical sense, an ethical dialectic, one of responsibility. So if we treat humans the way Australia has treated refugees, then it's inevitable you're going to treat other life forms the same and habitat the same. So this is a poem defending the rights of human refugees and humans as a whole and all living things. For more information on extinction allergies and to contribute your own extinction poem, visit redroompoetry.org. You can also hear the whole of Michelle Carl's poem on the Red Room Poetry website. Extinction Elegies is produced by me, Prithvi Vatharajan, with music by Guillermo Bartiz. With thanks to our poets, experts, the Australia Council for the Arts, and Create New South Wales. In the next episode of Extinction Elegies, Art and Science, we'll hear from the poets Bruce Pascoe and Mark Tradinick as well as from Durham University Research Fellow, Dr. Thomas Bristow. Thanks for joining me for Extinction Elegies.